Brian was a 10-year-old public school child who struggled with math. His mom and dad, they did everything they could to try and help their son. Peer tutoring, after-school sessions, private tutors, nothing seemed to work. Well, on a wing and a prayer, they enrolled Brian in Catholic school, hoping the nuns and their habit-forming discipline might just do the trick. Well, at the end of his first day, Brian walked in the house and he went straight to his room and he immediately laid into his math homework. He emerged long enough to quickly scarf down his dinner and then went straight back to work until bedtime. Well, the parents, they didn't want to break the spell of Brian's newfound focus, so they let it go without comment. Weeks went by, same pattern. Brian became relentless in his math studies. Well, one day he came into the house and he dropped an unopened envelope on the table and per usual went straight down to business with his math studies. Cautiously, his mother opened the letter. To her amazement, she saw a bright red A under the subject math. Well, overjoyed, both parents rushed into their son's room. Was it the nuns that did it, the father asked? The boy shook his head. No. Was it the private tutoring, the peer mentoring, asked the mother. Again, Brian shook his head. No. Well, tell us, what helped you turn this around so quickly? Well, Brian said... Catholic school made it very clear to me that math was important. As soon as I set foot in that building and I saw the guy they nailed to that plus sign, I knew these people meant business. <laughs> so stupid, right? <laughs> oh, man. But I love, I actually love that joke for the way it helps us experience the cross, so loaded with meaning and symbolism through the eyes of a child who carries none of that baggage. To him, it's just a giant plus sign. It made me wonder, for all our familiarity with the cross, do we really understand what it means? We post crosses on buildings and billboards. We wear crosses on t-shirts around our necks even as tattoos, but do we understand what the cross really means? So this cross talk sermon series is our, is our way to accompany Jesus on his inevitable collision course with the cross. The series is shaped by a number of questions. What exactly happened on the cross? Was it a, a demonstration of God's love that brings us back? To God? Was it a once and for all sacrifice? Was it a cosmic struggle between good and evil coming to a head? Was it a payment or a transaction of sorts? Or was it a lynching with the very love of God left to hang on the tree? If you're not altogether clear about these matters, then I have good news for you. The church isn't clear either. 
There are many perspectives about what happened on the cross. And the even better news is that these different perspectives are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to pick one and say that's how it happened, not those. The church has sought to understand this for two millennia, but in the end, it's a mystery. And in fact, these differing images about what happened on the cross have come to be known as atonement theories. I think that I actually prefer images instead of theories. It preserves that sense of mystery. But the more important word is atonement. You break that word down into its component parts and you get at one meant. Central to all these atonement theories is the sense that through the cross, Jesus makes us at one with God. And we can wonder if the cross is really essential to this at one Couldn't there be a way to do it without all of that messy cross business? But the witness of Scripture is clear that the cross is necessary or, at the very least, inevitable. So we turn our attention to the 16th chapter, the Gospel of Matthew, for our reading today. But first, I'll invite you to pray with me. Let us pray. As the beams of the cross join together at that point of intersection, meet us here, O God, in the reading of your word. Meet us here at the crossroads and make yourself known to us so that we might see you more clearly and the path you would have us follow. Amen. From the Gospel of Matthew. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to become my disciple must deny themselves and take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let me ask you, does anybody remember that old camp song, We're Going on a Bear Hunt? You guys know that one? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Feel free to sing along if you want. Going on a bear hunt, gonna catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Oh no, grass. Long, wavy grass. 
Can't go over it, can't go under it. Oh no, got to go through it. Swishy swashy, swishy swashy, swishy swash. So in the course of the song, thank you, Team Aldridge. Um, in the course of the song, you encounter a deep cold river, thick, oozy mud, a big dark forest, a cold damp cave, and every time it's the same thing, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. Oh no, you got to go through it. Well, Jesus seems to have said the same thing about the cross, a loomy, doomy cross. He cannot go over it. He cannot go under it. He has to go through it. He's quite clear about this in our reading today. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must be killed. Peter does his best to convince him otherwise, but Jesus only doubles down. It's not just a cross for him. There's a cross for any who would follow him. No shortcuts allowed. Deny yourself. Take it up. Follow. And to be clear, Jesus did not have a dainty 24-karat gold cross in mind. The church has done a really good job of beautifying the cross. There's nothing beautiful about a Roman cross. It was a particularly cruel form of public execution. The Romans had no interest in making a quick and painless end of their prisoners. Crucifixion took hours, sometimes more than an entire day. Prolonging pain, that was the point. And crucifixion was designed to humiliate, yes, the victim himself, but also the occupied people, to remind everyone who was in charge. So crucifixion was most often reserved for insurrectionists, for those who, who sought to roam, run Rome right out of Israel. So every crucifixion is like this giant human billboard spelling out a simple, consistent message, do not mess with the empire. So yeah, the cross is quite ugly. And yet the New Testament writers maintain that there's something absolutely necessary about the cross, that the gospel story is incomplete without it. So perhaps this is a good, as good a place as any to dive into what has been called the moral influence theory of atonement. While the moral influence theory is the least supernatural of the atonement models, it is among the oldest. So the theory goes like this, with, begins with the idea that humans are captive to sin. We are sin's prisoner. We cannot tell right from wrong. Our separation from God is so complete that we'll think nothing of stringing up another human being in public, executing him so long as it protects our interests and our lifestyle. So the cross embodies the very worst of human impulses, our selfishness, our greed, our capacity for cruelty. Jesus, on the other hand, is a perfect embodiment of God's love. And it is that divine love that sets Jesus on a collision course with that cross. God so desires union with us that Jesus will meet us at our very 
worst. So the cross then is this grand gesture of God's extravagant love that God would hold nothing back from us. And then when we behold the cross, when we know the depths of God's love for us, there's this seismic shift that happens inside of us. The captivity to sin, it's shaken. And we're set free to lead a more holy and helpful life. God's love so powerfully on display expands our own capacity to choose love. So in a nutshell, in its simplest form, that is the moral influence theory of atonement. Now the limits of this model are that it is all about the individual's experience. The effects of Jesus' death are played out in our interior lives only. So this grand gesture of love, it may have an effect on you. It might break the spell of sin over your life. It could inspire you to lead a life that's more generous and caring. But maybe it won't. So the question lingers, is the cross only effective for a small number of people? Is it only real for those who open themselves to its persuasive powers? That's the critique of the moral influence theory of atonement. And this maybe it does, maybe it doesn't aspect. It was unsatisfactory to many. And so in the history of the church, they sought alternative understandings. And we'll examine those in the coming weeks. But let's stay focused on this one. What I find compelling in the moral influence theory is the, is the profound power that love can have in our lives. How God insists on meeting our worst with God's best and how that changes us. But there's something a little countercultural about that. Usually our culture speaks of love as a feeling, right? Before anything else, love is an emotion. And you can see it even in the words we use. I just don't feel that way about you anymore. Or more recently, language has doubled down on this. If you've ever heard anybody say, I'm feeling all the feels. This atonement theory, however, reminds us that God's love is not an emotion. It's more tangible than that. Let's just use John 3.16. It's a familiar verse to many. It's not that God so loved the world that he had warm, fuzzy feelings about us. It's God so loved the world that he gave, that he surrendered, that he sacrificed his only begotten son. The love of God's not an emotion. It's this active commitment to be with us, even when it does not feel good, even, even when it hurts. Because it's another occasion that's characterized by love and one that many of us have attended or taken part in ourselves, consider a wedding ceremony. Now, most of the weddings I have officiated have been for young couples in their 20s, 30s maybe. They've dated for a year or four or seven or however many. 
They've been engaged for another year or so, and then they're standing in front of me, and they're ready to get married. And they're dressed to the nines, and not one hair is out of place, and there's sweet-smelling flowers everywhere, and it's so beautiful. And there are fields bouncing all over the walls, right? And then it falls to me, the officiating pastor, to ask them this absolutely earth-shaking question. Do you promise before God and these witnesses to be loving and faithful in joy and in sorrow, in plenty and in want, in sickness and in health? And they're all googly-eyed and giddy and feeling all the feels, and so, of course, they say yes. Just plain old yes. But from where I stand in that moment, I can see the couple. I can also see just beyond them to the congregation out there. And they're all toothy grins, too. I know it. But here's what I know. Anybody out there who's been married one, maybe two weeks, They might be nodding and smiling, but inside I know what they're thinking. They have no idea what they're getting themselves into. It's true, that promise made, you have absolutely no clue what seismic shifts you are welcoming into your life in that moment how it will shape and reshape you over and over and over. You can't, you can't see the sorrow that will one day rise up and threaten to steal away all the joy. And you can't see those moments when the want creeps in to overthrow the plenty you thought would be constant. It's a seismic promise. And that's not to speak of the countless ways you'll drive each other crazy along the way, how this person will in fact help you feel all the feels, how you will perhaps get unreasonably angry when your dearest life partner composts the leftovers that you were so sure had another couple good days in them. It's just a hypothetical, for instance. But when that young couple is standing there with those toothy grins, they may not fully grasp that this person is going to see me at my very worst. And if that young couple could see the full weight of that promise, they might have something more to say than plain old yes. But here's the gospel, friends. God could see us all of us. The capacity for beauty and kindness, yes, but God could also see the cruelty of the cross forming in our imagination, the very worst of what we can summon. God could see it all, and God still chose us. God still chooses us. God says, yes. And therein lies perhaps the greatest miracle of all, that God could take something so ugly and turn it into something so beautiful. A promise, a commitment, a sacrifice. If a love like that doesn't 
influence us to be the best version of ourselves, I don't know what will. And yet still, I'm not convinced that our being best, the best version of ourselves, is the entire point of the crucifixion. But the most pure kind of love embracing us at our very worst, that that rings true for me. I, for one, I'd go on a bear hunt for that kind of love any day of the week. Amen.